the airy mountain, down the rushing glen. We dare not go a-hunting, for fear of little men. Do other races exist just beyond the boundaries of humankind? Legends of their existence persist across many cultures. So, what are these creatures? Beings of myth and magic? Guardians of nature? Or malign entities from darkest folklore? Join your guides Dan Baines and Fiona Marr in their quest for the truth. Hello and welcome to the Fairy Podcast episode number two. I'm Dan Baines. Hi and I'm Fiona Ma. And uh, we'd like to first of all thank everyone for the great reception of the pilot episode we released last month. It's been it's been great hasn't it Fiona? Absolutely fabulous. Loads of followers on Facebook and I understand we're on lo- lots of different platforms. We are yes yeah we're now on Spotify and we finally got the go-ahead to go on iTunes. We had to wait for quite a long time, but I, I realised I'd actually forgotten to press a button in my email account, so <laughs> I went back uh, a week oh, well. and a half later, and we magically appeared on iTunes in the space of 24 hours, so um, it wasn't iTunes, it was just my technical inability. But we have almost 300 followers on the Facebook page now, which is which is great for saying we've started off only four, three or four, four weeks ago, I believe the last episode came out. Yeah, and only having one episode so far as they build, as we've mentioned before, I'm pretty sure we're going to get a wider audience. That's it, yeah. From from Little Acorns, Mighty Oaks grow. In this show, we're going to be covering one of the most important stories to do with fairies in the modern age. Yeah, indeed. We're going to talk about the Cottingley Fairy incident today. How old were you when you first heard about the Cottingley Fairies? Well, this is it. I seem to have known about it forever. Um, we had lots of sort of interesting books at home when I, I was a kid. Um, I, I was able to read at three and I don't remember, I had a few children's books, but I think I had an awful lot of, of um, kind of non-kids books lying around for me to look at. And I, I seem to remember seeing those photographs forever. So, you know, I, I'm not, a, put it this way, I'm not aware of the time when I wasn't aware of the Cottingley Fairies. Yeah, I'm, I come from a similar background I think I, I remember seeing them in the PG Tips cards they released an album of the unexplained mysteries of the world and I always remember getting the Cottingley Fairies photograph card I mean modern modern people you know the new millennials will have no idea what we're talking about when we say um, PG Tips <laughs> cards but you used to get little collectible cards in um, packs of tea which you would then put into little albums and collect them and uh, I only collected one album and that was the um, the unexplained one but there was a Cottingley Fairies one and I also remember watching it on Arthur C. Clarke's World of Strange Powers where they actually interviewed yeah. Elsie Wright um, for the show and I think if you go on YouTube you can probably still see that interview online now yeah, shall we recap the story then for people who don't know? Yes, definitely. Because might, might be the odd person. We understand that loads of people listening to us are well into their sort of fairy history and mythology. But the basic story was that Francis Griffith, who is nine or ten, accounts vary, and Elsie 
Majesty Wright, who was around about 17, the pair of the girls uh, managed to capture some photographs of fairies. And this was taken up by the creative Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And he published them in the Christmas edition. I think it was 1921 edition yes. of the Strand magazine. Could have been 1920. It was 1920. But anyway, yeah. was it 21? It was 20. Yeah, 20, 20 yeah. Um, and uh, so the story was there was a beck, which is like a little brook at the back of their house. Because um, they live pretty, I think they lived next door to each other in this place called Cottingley, which is was near Bradford at the time. It's since been swallowed up by Bradford. And uh, Frances was forever going home, absolutely soaking wet, covered in mud. And she used to get thrashed by her mother, who was really angry with her for ruining her clothes. And she, she jumped up and she said, it's not my fault, it's the fairies. I keep seeing fairies and I keep trying to get a better view of them. Um, and the grown-ups laughed. And on the basis of this, the girls borrowed um, Elsie Wright's father's camera, which was a little fairly portable one for the day called a midge camera. And it used these wonderful glass plates. And they took um, a couple of photographs of fairies. The, the most fa- famous one is of Frances. And she's sitting with a dreamy look in her eye. And there's a group of fairies dancing in front of her. And then there was another one of Frances who is the elder girl with dark hair. Um, anyway, the, these these came to public view via the Theosophical Society, which I will explain later, and they came to the attention of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He, as I've said, printed them in the news, in the, um, well, it was a magazine, um, and basically became a laughing stock. Uh, so he then went about trying to prove that Ferris existed. So that's the basics story for years and years and years the the two girls they grew up they fell out they lived miles and miles apart in england um and eventually i think it was uh it wasn't francis it, it was, was elsie, elsie yeah who, who said they'd been faked in in old age but this was after they'd caused a lot of trouble um so to the modern night the photographs look incredibly fake yeah um there is the theory that one of them you can see little faces in the grass, which is um, a, a later photograph. What happened, uh, the girls were given cameras, and it's not clear whether they were given them by Arthur, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Now, I think it was him. Uh, there was a chap involved called um, Edward L. Gardner, who was the linchpin of all of this. Uh, he was from the Theosophical Society, and he offered to give them a camera. Okay. But anyway, by hook or crook, they got they got a camera and they took further three photographs in 1920. So the original photographs were taken in 1917. Then they took three more three years later, and um, the the these were photographs which, which one of them people are saying, well, actually there are fairies in it. And that is the fairies in the sun. That's uh, the sun bath one. It's isn't sun it? bath. Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. quite an interesting photograph because. It does ver- It is different from the other photographs in the fact that the fairies in it are quite are translucent, and yeah. there is quite a few other faces hiding amongst the blades of grass in there. It's almost like one of those hidden. It's almost like a Where's Wally picture because if you look in the grass, you can actually see other faces peeking through through the blades of grass. I think it was a simple double exposure. Yeah. Um, but I will explain that later. But the the. So the story was, so the basic, the, the, the thing of the case is that 
Francis and Elsie took the pictures in 1917. They didn't come to the notice of the Theosophical Society until 1919, when Elsie's mum went to uh, a meeting. Now, the Theosophical Society was sort of almost like a hippie pick and mix New Age religion. Um, We'd seen the Great War. Um, And it had been shown so much destruction that a lot of men had lost their faith in the trenches, as indeed did the families. Although letters were heavily censored, people came home and described the hell they'd they'd been through. So these same people who'd been urged by the church and state to go and fight for the country were now in no mood to uh, have anything to do with mainstream religion. And theosophy kind of taught, it was really nice. It was kind of like, you know, love one another, respect each other be nice you know it was it was the right kind of thing it was no blood and thunder it was no promise of heaven or hell these guys had already seen hell so um anyway so along goes Elsie's mum to the theosophical society meeting the lady who's given the talk i uh, was talking about fairies and um Elsie's mum happened to have a couple of photographs in a handbag taken by the girls she brought them to the attention of the theosophical society meeting leader a uh, lady whose name I, I I don't know, I can't find out exactly who it was who took the meeting. And she uh, brought them to attention of a chap called Edward L. Gardner, who was then the president of the Theosophical Society. And he was very much taken with them. And uh, he took them to a chap called Harold Snelling to have a look at. Now, uh, there is a quote that... Um, Whatever, uh, something like whatever Snelling doesn't know about faking photographs isn't worth knowing that, along those lines. Uh, so I haven't done that word for word, sorry. But Snelling basically enhanced the, the photographs, the plates, the, the actual plates. He made copies of, he deepened shadows, he made them look more 3D. But he did say that they, were, they weren't double exposed. It was just these first two photographs taken in 1917, and they were um, the wings were definitely moving, uh, and this would prove quite fatal when when Arthur Conan Doyle got involved. We also have to remember as well, sorry, that um, the the 1920s was the heyday of photo manipulation. If you're looking at spirit photography, um, so a lot of double exposures. To find out these were single exposures was very important. Yes. Um, so. Uh, the um, under the uh, guidance of Edward L. Gardner, many, many of these photographs, they were printed up and uh, they were sold at theosophical meetings. And I think it's one in six for a small print and two in six for a big print. This is old money. So two in six is about about 50 pence in new money, I think, right. isn't it? Oh, I have no idea. You're I probably better, you're in a better position think... to tell me. Oh, I... I, I <laughs> Anyway, yeah. it's about it was a quarter of an old pound. Okay. So, um, so yeah, we're looking probably twenty five p then, aren't we? Sorry, but in those Postcard days, two and six was probably. the uh, post. Well, no, two and no, 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 two and six was the average weekly wage of a farm labourer. All right. Okay. In nineteen twenty, these were incredibly expensive. A uh, postcard would have been maybe a farthing. So by comparison. These were incredibly high value value items. And I have no idea how many were sold. It has been quoted as being in the hundreds. And of course, the Wright family and the Griffiths family, they got a cut of whatever the Theosophical Society were raising. Nice little earner. A nice little earner. So there was 
Gardner in London. He gave a talk um, about the photos and a lady, and I can't find out her first name, known as Miss E.M. Blomfeld, bought a couple of copies and she's the person who got them to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's notice. She was his cousin and she sent them to him and she said, um, wouldn't it be great if these were real? And he wrote back saying, we must tread with caution. So even in the early days, he wasn't sure. But remember, these photographs were not taken from the original plates. These were taken from the enhanced plates done by Harold Snelling. So uh, he gave uh, the families £5 to print the uh, photos in the Strand for the rights to use them. So that was £240 in present day money and another five pounds to print them in the um, American version the American issue now it's my belief that the family were quite happy with the money coming in from the Theosophical Society and it started spiralling out of control when Conan Doyle got involved yes the money got bigger the interest got bigger but also the stakes got bigger because we now know they are they were indeed fakes um it wasn't actually until the 70s that somebody pointed out that the um the the fairies in the picture had been copied from a book called the queen mary gift book which was um a, a storybook which made money basically to help the war effort for the first world war was it the illustrations by claude arthur shepperson yeah dancing girls yeah, dancing girls and all they did was was well elsie wright was known to be a good artist artist um she actually had worked in a photographic studio from the age of 15 okay um blotting out all postcards then you know we're talking about postcards that were black and white and sometimes you'd get the odd hair or a white blotch where it should be black so her job was to black out as it was called she just got a paintbrush and blotted out all the imperfections in the plates for the postcards so she'd been working with photography for a while um so um, basically, it went on. Dear old, dear old Conan Doyle got deeper and deeper in. He gave the girls five hundred pounds each for their future weddings, which again is many thousands in today's money. So a lot of money changed hands. Yeah, there's a lot of um, cash incentive um, a lot for of these fairies. Incentive, yeah. And uh, unfortunately, I think his prejudice got in the way. He was quoted as saying he did not believe children of the artisan class would try to fool him. No. So you. Know, but but as I've said before, I've written a book on this called The Secret of the Cottingley Fairies. Um, it's available on Amazon, folks, by FRMR, <laughs> spelled M-H-G-R. Um, he, um, he was almost predisposed, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was predisposed to believe in fairies. Um, his uncle was Dickie Doyle, who'd done the original cover for Punch magazine, which was used right up, up until 1958. And if anyone sees any old copies of this you'll see all these imps and sprites running around it was quite a well-known cover um he also did loads of of fairy paintings which were used for illustrations in victorian storybooks so dear old conan Doyle grew up with with uncle dicky doing all these drawings and paintings but his own father um after extreme alcoholism was incarcerated in a mental institution um in scotland and he did nothing all day other than draw these, he, he called them little people, because the Doyles were originally an Irish family, and uh, um, Charles Alt 
Mont Doyle, who was Conan Doyle's father, he was a, he was raised by Irish parents. So these drawings are literally of little people. There are no wings, but you get very diminutive figures peeping out from under stems and things. There was a book uh, printed of it in the 70s um, of Charles Altamont Doyle's drawings. Now, um, so if the, the reason I'm, I'm mentioning this is I believe that Conan Doyle really wanted to prove the existence of fairies, to prove that his dad wasn't that mad at all. Um, and at a time when people, if you had your father incarcerated for alcoholism somewhere, you would not in polite society mention that. It, mental health was completely taboo and it would not have been a thing to be discussed. But far from it, Conan Doyle seems to have celebrated his father. He he mounted an art exhibition for him. Um, he got him to illustrate um, a slightly later edition of a study in Scarlet. And also um, in his last bow, which is the final Sherlock Holmes book, um, Sherlock uses the pseudonym Altamont, which was Conan Doyle's father's middle name uh, in, in that in that particular book. So he's really, if slightly covertly, he's celebrating his daddy, showing the world he loves his father. And I do believe that that he, he thought if he could prove Ferris existed, it would show it wasn't his, a symptom of his father's DTs. It would actually be, you know, he'd say, look, you know, my dad's seeing real stuff here. Yeah. Um, it's and almost like final, he's clutching at straws, really. He for, is. Uh, yeah. but, but there are so many, there are so many things that build up to form this picture. The other thing is that, you know, most people know that he studied, um, Conan Doyle studied to be a doctor under the famous Professor Bell, um, who Sherlock Holmes was based on. But what he actually studied was ophthalmology, so eyes. And he firmly believed that children could see more than we can. Now, as I say in my book, children can certainly hear more than adults, which is why they put these mosquito devices on buildings to, keep to get teenagers kids to move away. away. Yeah, yes. drinking teenagers away from corner shops. I can actually still hear those, though. Yeah, I, I can occasionally. Yeah, um, which is not a bad sign. No. But um, yes, so so really, um, he wasn't that wide of the mark. He just, you know, it was only I think eighteen ninety five. Mm. Wrench and discovered x-rays, you know, and that was like miraculous. But it has always been a strong belief that children are more receptive to everything that is considered supernatural or paranormal. Yeah, but, but hang on, this is science-based because his, the belief then was, wow, if we can discover a device that can see through flesh to bone, Wrench and rays later became x-rays, then surely science can discover other means by which we can pierce all these veils. So it wasn't just seen as a woo-woo mystical thing. It was seen as actually having a scientific basis, right? So it was, whilst Conador had a foot in both camps, he believed that, you know, uh, uh, he believed in mediumship, spiritualism, all sorts of stuff like that. He'd also trained as a scientist and he just believed that if you push things further, that that science and spiritualism would meet up and this was this was another plank in the, his argument that children can see more he's trying to prove his dad wasn't as mad as, as everyone thought he had the evidence that from um, Snelling at Kodak that the uh, wings of these creatures were moving in the photographs you know he was actually hung by his own deduction you know it was that classic um, line from Conan Doyle once you've removed the impossible uh, 
whatever is left, however improbable, must be the truth. Yeah. So, you know, he really was hoist by his own petard. And he came from a, an Irish background with an instilled belief in fairy folklore, which was probably there, had been there all of his life. And at a time when nearly everyone did, be, well, a lot of, you know, if you go to I- Ireland now, there is a hell of a lot of people out there who still have a strong fi- faith in fairy folklore. So going back a hundred years, it's going to be even stronger. And they also see them as malign beings as well. So the fact that the photographs caused so much trouble, in a way, must have, to him, thought, well, it's just the fairies causing trouble again, you know. But but people try and say it was the product of a failing mind that Conador was losing it. But he wasn't at all. He was still, you know, as bright as ever. Um, um in 1903, there was a case. Um, I mean, 1907, it wasn't that far away, you know, from, from these events. Um, there was a case of a chap called George Adalji. There'd been a load of horses mutilated in this place called Great Riley in Staffordshire. And George Adalji, his dad had been Parsi, but had actually changed faith to become um, an English minister. And George, being half Indian, you know, and his dad, they stuck out like a sore thumb in this little Staffordshire village. They had um, the 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 uh, they had the house vandalised. They received poison pen letters, and the police immediately tried to 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 say that actually these they were sending this racial racialist abuse to themselves. So that was the police's stance. So when some horses that was in 1903, all that kicked off in 1907 when these horses were were uh, mutilated um that's what, sorry no it was 1903 when the horse was mutilated the police just drew the threads together and said no it's george adalji again up to his, his old tricks how they put poison pen letters and graffiti on his house together with horse mutilation i don't know but they did and george ended up being um sentenced to hard labor for seven years he actually served four years and when he came out he said, you know, to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you've got to clear my name because um, George, bless him, had been a solicitor. Uh, so his dad had been the priest. He'd been a solicitor. He'd had good income, you know. And and um, Arthur Conan Doyle, they set up a petition and Conan Doyle pointed out that there's no way George Adalji could have done this because allegedly it happened at night um, and George was so short-sighted. He he was so myopic. He could not have felt, found his way through the darkness to a field with a, a dark horse in the corner, you know, quarter or half a mile away from his home. And and long story short, Conan Doyle got this guy um, free. He got him fully pardoned and he was able to take up being a solicitor again. So, you know, he was pretty good at, at um, championing causes and I think as Conan Doyle saw it this was just another cause for him to champion yeah. the whole Cottingly Ferris incident my belief is different though uh, um, as I've exposed in this book um, I question whether the pictures were taken in 1917 and the reason for that is that in 1917 in I think it was April a photograph was printed in a, in a it was. It was. They had things that were weren't quite magazines and weren't quite newspapers then, um, but they were called magazines. Um, so they'd have sort of black and white photographs, bits of news, tidbits all over them. You know, sort of letters from people. Yeah, um, like a fanzine. And this one, <laughs> type yeah, yeah. Well, well, <laughs> not but, really. No, it's basically 
a newspaper on a higher quality paper and stapled. There's, there really wasn't much difference. And lots of, of fluff stories, lots of, oh, this is a bit of fun, you know, and ladies' Take fashion. Take a break. This. So, yes, <laughs> more like break. that, yes. Yeah, Women's Weekly. That, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. But this one was called The Sphere. So if anyone knows London Illustrated magazine, it would be a bit like that. And it had a photograph of a girl sitting by a hedge adorned with paper fairies. And it made no pretense that these were real fairies. It talked about the wonder of a child's imagination. All it was was this photograph captioned. And that was was uh, printed in 1919. And um, there was no mention of Cottingley fairies, anything like that. Um, and it's my belief that um, George, um, George Wright, who is Elsie's father, he saw this because they're very, very wild, widely distributed, these magazines. And I think he thought, I can do better than that, because he was the he was the guy who developed the first plates that the girls had taken. He had his own photographic studio. But. There was another photograph of a lady with a tam o taken in 1919. That is so like the iconic picture of Francis with the fairies. Now, these photographs are included in your book. They're in is my correct? book, yes, yes. Yeah, and I have seen these photographs, and they are remarkably similar to the Cottingley fairy photographs. And as you say, there is no reference to them at all in these pictures. And it has always been accepted that these, because they were taken in 1990, were copies of the Cottingley photographs. But I spun it on its head and I thought, well, what if Arthur Wright saw these photographs, thought I can do better than that, did so, then... Uh, the whole thing with Theosophical Society. We don't know the woman's name who gave the talk on fairies. I doubt if there was a talk on fairies. I believe that Elsie's mum went along with the photographs in her handbag and said, oh, look, my daughter took these. And I think that that's where it all started. And the idea was possibly, I don't think it was a hoax. I think it was to make money. And the reason I I then started thinking, right, well, if these were taken in 1919, what other evidence do we have? And the other evidence we have is simply by looking at the photographs of particularly Francis, the young one. Now, Francis's age range is from is nine or ten. I've heard it quoted that she was even eight. But um, from what I can work out, she was nine when those photos, she was sorry, ten when those photographs were taken. Now, in 1920, she would therefore have been 13. And the huge developmental leap from 10 to 13 in a girl is far more noticeable than in a boy. They will look very, very different in photographs. As you know, you've, you've got a son who, who's gone through this. 10 to 13, huge age yes. gap. Yeah, you look back at the photographs and you think, my, yeah, geez, you know, they grow about three foot. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you look at the pictures of Francis, including the iconic one, and then you look at later photos, allegedly later fo- photos taken in 1920, there is not a three-year gap there. Um, there's a particularly famous picture of her and Elsie, and they're by a waterfall with Edward L. Gardner, the chap from the Theosophical Society. And I, I do not think that, that Francis looks much older at all, possibly a year, maybe not. But nobody Nobody seems to have, have looked more closely at girls to look for changes in them. And I think that was the important thing to do, you know, and, and nobody 
seems to have picked up on that and i just thought well if they, that then because that to me is the clearest evidence you've got is photographic evidence it's there it's the girls everyone's fo- focusing on the fairies not the girls and i feel that if you look at them you will see that there's just you know time and time again you've got so many photos of them that didn't have the fairies in and you can have a, a good clear look at them and and see that there's just it's just not there the age hasn't happened so if that means that the, the, there's some argument as to when the photos, the first two photos were taken, then that draws in the rest of the family because the whole family was saying that the photos were taken in 1917, which now throws the whole thing on its head. It, it's not two little girls who've duped Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It's two families. It's the Wrights family and the Griffiths family. And not only duped Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, but also the theosophical society the newspapers all of this oh, money yes. that's been rolling yeah. in it's much yeah better for the family yeah. to have it revealed as a hoax although it wasn't revealed as a hoax till about 1983 is that correct so yes let it run I, I, I don't right well the thing is hang on hang on let's just go back a bit it, it, I don't think they wanted Conan Doyle involved. I just think they wanted the photos out with the Theosophical Society and more modest sums coming in, but coming in continually. You know, that would have been better. That would have been better in the long term. And then it got out of hand by getting someone of of his calibre involved. And it's also, nobody's ever said, well, they had those cameras. If they were seeing fairies all the time, how come there were only three further photographs? And I read the letters. Uh, I went out to the this library in Leeds, the Brotherton Library, and there's all these. You know, um, it would be really nice if you could have some photos. Um, please come here, some photos. Um, where are the photos? So there's continual sort of like when you've got the cameras, girls. You know, come on. And uh, it would the the excuses were, oh, Elsie had a headache today. You know, and it's just it's so obvious that they're they're incredibly uncomfortable with this whole idea but um yes so what happened and it's really sad because you know it kind of wasn't a victimless crime in a way you had joe cooper who wrote this book the case of the cotton fairies and joe bless him was run ragged running between this in the 70s i think running between the the uh, now elderly um elsie and francis who'd fallen out and they lived each ends of the country so he was back and forth interviewing them and almost out of hand Elsie just wrote one day saying oh it's all made up anyway and the shock absolutely spent sent Joe almost to a breakdown Um, his marriage broke down he was in a terrible mess over this because he had so utterly believed in this story for so many years and it just seemed like everything sort of fell to bits for him um, and I don't think he lasted. I don't think he lived for much longer after that revelation. But it was. Um, it was also. I think he. Comp- I think it appeared in, in a newspaper as well, where else he had said it had been a hoax. But by then, so many people, you know, modern people looking at the photographs, going, they can't possibly be real, you know. So really, it, it was. It, it was kind of. It was a bit like Freddie Mercury coming out. Nobody was surprised. It was one of those, you know. So really, the whole thing with with Cotton, it it was just a shame that Joe had got so embroiled with it, you know, terribly sad. She actually wrote a letter 
and it was between Elsie and Francis and in, le- in the letter it actually said I hated those photographs from the age of 16 when Mr Garden presented me with a bunch of flowers and wanted me to sit on the platform which was at the theosophical meeting and uh, she actually writes I realised what I was in for if I did not keep myself hidden so you know it's it took all that time for her to pluck up the courage to reveal it as a hoax I think I think also um, I think for many years they had to carry on with it because you see whilst they could have um used the guise of being children and they'd be a bit naughty their dad would have gone to prison yes you know so i think i think that is another reason why they kept it quiet for so long because people have just turned around and said hold on a minute all of this money we've given you for these fake photographs we want it back and uh, sorry it's spent <laughs> well it, it was fraud it was yeah. fraud so he would have gone straight to jail well hoaxes are fraud in a in one in a in a slight way i mean the story draws quite a lot of parallels to the the mummified fairy hoax that i did in the fact that it started out as a bit of fun that went out of control to a point where it got scarily out of control and I had to reveal it as a hoax because it was attracting the attention of too many high-profile things such as newspapers and television, which I never, ever thought it would do. I just thought it would hit some local newspapers like the Derby Evening Telegraph and it would be it would be chip paper the next day, but it just didn't go like that. No, no. And this is the thing, and it's almost... It's kind of like I, I've put in my book here, you know, that... If there are fairies behind it, it's almost perfect for them because they can use it to prove they don't exist. Yes. You know? <laughs> what better way really? to cover your tracks than way? to get yeah. people to do yeah. it for you, yeah. <laughs> to, to do things like that? Exactly. Exactly. And the whole thing with, with um, the whole Cottingley thing, the way it took off, it shows that we are all desperate to believe. You know, it shows that there are a lot of people out there and they really... It, it's not it's not that they don't believe they do but they want evidence they're desperate for evidence um and i think that it's an extraordinary part of the human psyche yeah. that almost like faith isn't enough you well, know? we, live in, we, we want... live in similar times to what the girls were living oh, in yeah. then we're living in a time yeah. where it's the collapse of modern or mainstream religion which yeah. as you said before happened after the first world war um people yeah. lost their faith and at the moment people are losing their faith there i mean that i think the attendance for normal church is down a thousand percent in a decade yeah. which means if uh, at the continued rate it means no one in 10 years time will be going to church anymore yeah we live in those times and you know you only have to look in the press and there's things about unicorns and all of this you know people making fairy doors in trees and all this type of stuff which wasn't around 10 20 years ago when you when we were a bit younger uh, it seems to have there's a resurgence in in fairy faith and wanting to believe in something other than you know god <laughs> yeah i think it's something to do with the end of a decade as well i think you'll get resurgences and stuff at the end of decades the massive one was the end of the last yeah. century and every, it sounds really like a long time ago <laughs> when you put it like that. But apart from the millennium bug, you had this whole sort of re- upsurge in, in alternative religions. And that almost goes back to the fan, founder, Siecla, back, you know, in the last century when that finished, you know. So I think he, each decade has its own 
oh, you know, it's later than you think. We, we better cast around for something to hang on to, uh, almost, if I can put it like that. But um, I feel that the the Cottomy fairies, they have a magic, they have a power, and it will never go away. And as witnessed, uh, there was the recent sale of um, Francis's uh, photographs. Yes, that took place. It was last month, actually. It was, um, it was a, I think it was probably at the same time we were recording the pilot show, or was it a few? It was a it few was days after. A few it was days, a few days yeah. after we recorded the pilot yeah. show, and uh, they sold yeah. for around fifty thousand pounds auction. That, um, but that's the, it. the the one of the most desirable photographs, um, which is Francis in the fairy ring, um, didn't sell. So the one that they thought would actually didn't. But are they the original? Are they, you know, what, this, as you say, so many, were, so many were produced. How can you tell if it was one of the originals? Sets of the theosophical ones go for around about two to 5,000, depending. Um, these are the, the, uh, the photos that they sold at the, the talks. But the thing that, that I would really like to see, I mean, Francis's, they just look like the plates that had been improved if i can use that word by harold snelling and they look like they were taken from that but there are examples and they're certainly in joe cooper's book of what the the pictures look like before snelling did his work on them and they they look very flat very faded very 2d now they're the ones they are the ones i really want to see come up for sale and the original plates you know but as far as i know they they are there's, there's some of them in Bradford Museum. I saw a, a very small exhibition. It was awfully sad, actually. It was just kind of like one tiny cupboard. And it had sort of examples of of cameras. And in there was one of the ones the girls had. Um, and there was no, no plates or anything there. So I'd like to know what's happened to the original plates, really. Um, but they're the ones. They're the ones I'd like to, to take the photos from and, and just, you know, see those properly not just reproduce in a book actually actually see them but what was so strange going into um the brotherton um you, you basically it's, it's really weird you go into a sort of windowless room you can't take anything sharp with you you have to leave your bag you can't take a pen everything's got to be written in pencil uh, and the documents are weighed out and handed to you and they weigh them back in again and there I was with all these letters from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, all, a load of uh, typed up stuff from Edward Gardner, pretty much the source material Joe Cooper had seen. Uh, and it just felt extraordinary to be sitting there with this massive information. Unfortunately, a lot. Yeah, it was incredible. Uh, also, just to see Conan Doyle's handwriting, um, which I know so well now after sort of years of looking at his work, that was just incredible. But. Um, what was what was sad was a lot of gardener stuff had been stored in a very damp trunk, so there's sort of you know literally holes in a lot of the letters, and that was very sad. But a lot of it was just you know sort of everyday notes, stuff between him and the families, you know, it, very sort of prosaic. I'm just so pleased what was there had been actually saved. But Sotheby's did a huge sale sometime in the 80s, and I've got the sale catalogue there of Conan Doyle stuff. At uh, the same time, they were selling some of, believe it or not, Dr. John Dee's books wow. in the same <laughs> auction. <laughs> like, wow, I wish I'd been there. And uh, they had things like um, um, a, a pocket watch that um, 
Conan Doyle had given to the illustrator of the um, Sherlock Holmes, you know, the, the yes. usual illustrator, whose yeah. name escapes me at the moment, I'm sorry. Um, and uh, there was there was a, a letter he'd, he'd had where he, he wrote about um, this Scottish lady who had gnomes in her garden and the fair fairy rings she, she'd watched them and they had inner rings and one lot would go sort of the fairies would go sort of clockwise in the middle and the gnomes would go anti-clockwise and the outside and she'd written this letter to him and he'd just taken it down verbatim and I thought you know how deep were you in by yeah. then Arthur you know it was really there was no no sense that this lady could be deluded or anything he absolutely took it verbatim so um, I think at that time and it's a shame because I think there were so many people sort of saying wild things they'd seen. Any any what we could term genuine sightings or sightings we can't explain would have been lost amongst mm. all this, you know, all the noise and chatter of what was going on. Yeah, it's kind of covered it all up. So your book, The Secret of the Cottingley Fairies, that was actually covered in uh, recent 14 times. Yeah, they did. They did a really nice cover story for me and I had six pages inside and they reproduced the drawings of uh, Charles Altamont Doyle. So it was lovely because they, it was everything was brought together. And uh, they put the Strand Magazine pick in there. It was all to do with money, really. Um, it was just yeah. a, a money thing that got out of hand, inspired by some photographs in a magazine that had been seen a few years previously. No, I think they'd been seen the same year. I really think they... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the same they year, came sorry. Out in 1919. The same year, yeah. the, because the family story was the girls had taken the photos in 1917 and they'd been passed around the family and then put in a drawer and forgotten for two years because they weren't taken mm. to the Theosophical Society until 1919. And I find it hard to believe that if they, you know, thought these photos were so sensational, they'd have shoved them in a drawer and forgotten them. Do you see what I mean? It's just, it beggars belief. It really, so I'm at the point now where I'm thinking, you know, at that stage already, when I heard this, I thought, hey, you know, you take pictures of fairies and you put them in a drawer and you forget them. I don't think so. Um, so, I mean, you know, <laughs> that's that's what got me interested. And that's why I thought, no, this doesn't add up. And it actually... Um, but prior to that, though, I'd written this, the novel, The Last Strangeling, and that was predicated on the idea of, of how come Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was, was fooled by two little girls? Because at that time, I hadn't gone into it. I didn't know the ins and outs, but I just knew the basic story. And that then grew into the idea, well, what if the real creatures behind it were using him to prove they didn't exist? And I thought that was a very interesting thread for a story. And that's what one of the, the threads from which the, the last changeling was born. But um, the whole the whole getting away from that. I mean, I don't think you can write a fairy book without mentioning the Cottingley fairies. I'll be honest with you. And I think no. it's going to rage forever. No, and there are people who story. just say, you know, whatever, even if the photos were fake, there is still the original story that Francis kept seeing fairies and and really wanted to photograph them to prove they existed to stop getting you know thrashed by a mum for getting her clothes so grubby so yeah. we all always have people believe regardless of what you reveal as being a hoax though people because all they'll turn around and say is the fact that you revealed it as a hoax is a conspiracy that someone's told you to keep your mouth shut therefore you've revealed it as a hoax it's um it happens in 
every conspiracy theory. Absolutely. But the way I leave it with my book is I leave the door open. You know, it, it is not in any way an attack on anyone's belief in fairies. No way. It is simply saying there is better evidence than this out there. Go to Ireland, go to Iceland, talk to the people who've seen them. You know, it, you don't have to rely on photographs that have been proven time and time again to be false. You know, you don't need some trace drawings from Queen Mary's gift book, you know. But in a way, it was almost a perfect storm, the way the Cottingley Ferry thing unfolded. And if anything is kind of mystical and a bit weird, <laughs> then that's it. You've got two girls who were not typical village kids. Um, uh, Frances Griffith, she'd been brought up in South Africa, and her cousin, Elsie Wright, um, had spent four years in Canada. They'd seen more of the world than most of the people in Cottingley before they came there. They they lived next door to each other. They were only children in each family at a time when families had rooks and rooks of kids. So they spent their time with adults. They were far more sophisticated than children of their age. You know, they were tech savvy as well. I mean, it's like the children of today. Um, you know, you see children walking around with iPhones and they can do all manner of things, which... To, to some adults of certain generations, uh, it just totally befuddles them how a child can actually operate one of these machines. But you've got two, two edu- educated kids who've primarily hung around with adults who are into photography. They've just taken what they've got and they've created this hoax with it. And it's no great leap of the imagination to see how and why yeah. they did it. Well, I don't think it was the girls, though. I think it was Arthur. Arthur was the one with the yeah. dark room and the technical skill. And I do not think that that the uh, children could have taken such... I mean, they, I'm sure they could have composed the photos and everything. Uh, but midges, mm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I'd put it that way. I don't think the, the girls took the actual photographs. I, I don't they think it's that... They are very crisp images. They are very crisp. I don't think saying how long the exposure would have to have been i mean i mean some of the photographs you can see a waterfall in the background and obviously the the waterfall is when you have a a a long exposure you get the misty kind of effect in the background but the obviously the fairies are so obviously two-dimensional when you see them uh but yeah so are you saying then her dad are you saying the father took the photos then yes and asked the children to pose for them yeah yes that would make sense. I believe that Arthur Wright, yeah, and he was the one with his own darkroom. He was a very, very keen amateur photographer. And uh, he, I believe he did it. I believe, you know, I've always said that Arthur took the photos. And he asked the girls to, to basically lie for him because I think he was cognizant of the fact that if it ever did blow up in his face, he would go to prison over it. I think he knew what he was doing. But I think he... he, he wanted to limit it and keep it small scale it would also explain the rift that formed between elsie and francis yeah i mean the father's done it and then he's put these two girls under tremendous pressure to keep lying all the time you know it, it does put a different different um spin on it also he was very cold and distant with conan doyle now this is a man who was giving him money uh bringing him fame you know all this and I think it was absolute, he was he was either ashamed or in fear. You know, I think you, you get sort of some celebrity come to your little village. You know, 
Imagine, Dan, Keanu Reeves turns up on your doorstep and starts giving you thousands of pounds. I would not expect you to be cold with him. Put it that way. You know, I would expect at least you put the kettle on. It's like a less, it's a, it's a less creepy, it's a less creepy yes. daddy's little yes. secret type of scenario you've got going Very on much. with the fairies. Yeah. And, and I think the psychological pressure the girls were under must have been awful. Um, I believe Francis actually left the country for a while uh, and in fact both of them might have when they got married but um, I just feel that it was just too much to expect these kids mind you then again look at the difference I mean Francis was working sorry Elsie was working at 15 most kids were, were working at 13 then and there was no such you know you had a brief childhood you were then an adult there weren't teenager years then teenagers were invented in the 50s so yeah yeah and you expect to have the same musical tastes as your parents wear the same sort of clothes you know so really to to regard them as children i mean no francis would have been almost not a child anymore at 10 13 definitely not a child anymore and elsie at 17 no she wouldn't have been regarded as a child either so why Conan Doyle refers them as children I think that's down to his class because children for his class would not have been set to work in shops and factories at that age but certainly working class kids yeah I mean there's so many layers to these stories yeah they're, they're, they're not black and white as it's portrayed in the press um, I'm, I'm wondering if the actual families of Elsie and Francis there is a family secret in there somewhere that actually does sta- state that the father was responsible for the photographs and it was all fabricated from the very beginning and they were just told to keep their mouth shut while the cash came rolling in. I, th- I think that is um, the unfortunate, you know, that that's the conclusion I've come to. Um, I, on the basis that, the, that, as I say, Francis has not aged as she ought to have and uh, these, these incriminating photographs, you know, both sets were out in 1919. I just think... He copied them. I really do. Um, I just think it's very, very sad that it has. It's almost been like a curse of the fairies that's happened to the girls, though. Um, the grandmother was is uh, Francis, granddaughter, sorry, Francis, was the lady who's recently sold the photographs. Um, and I was asked to be on Good Morning Britain. Not, no, not Good. Oh, gosh, I can't remember. Some Some breakfast show on BBC. And uh, they wanted me to say that I believed in the photographs because she did. And because I wouldn't, <laughs> I didn't go on. But I thought there's no way I can compromise, you know, what I've said in this book, you know. And as I say, it, it does not mean that I do not believe in fairies. I just don't believe in these photographs of them. Yeah, it's like a little sort of double-edged yeah. sword when you yes. deal with fairies, I think. You kind of have the 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 benefit of... I wouldn't say the fame, but you you do have some benefits from it, but it has some longer-lasting effect upon your life. Um, It's fairy gold, isn't it? You think about it. It is. It is. It's fairy gold. There are always consequences. (laughs) Yeah, there are always, always consequences of your dealings. And I Mm. just felt that... I just felt that it had... The story had to be told as I saw it. You know, I'm sure other people come up with other theories. It's a bit of a Jack the Ripper, this one, you know, who actually done it. Um, but I, I think there will be theories. And I, I hope in 100 years, people still be arguing about it. You know, who did it? You know, 
but I just feel that this this story will not go away. It's always going to be with us. It always makes you wonder, though, is there some sort of fairy intervention with these stories? Like with my, you know, the hoax I've done. It's a, uh, you know, it did it did destroy my career, and you know, everything I worked towards in the forces and at university um, is pretty much redundant. It's no longer useful in what I do, and I'm I do what I do now purely because of that. There's no other route. There's no other avenue for me really to go down anymore because I chose to dabble. Yeah. With the fairies. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm kind of I'm wondering what, what's going to happen when I go to Ireland and confront some of the Irish ones there. Confront is the wrong word because I wouldn't dream of being that unwise. Uh, I'm going to take probably sweeties and things with me to keep them happy. You know. Uh, <laughs> I don't really... Shotgun. Oh, no. No. Goodness me. Don't get me in trouble. So, yes, I'm wondering what that is going to do because I'm hoping to go and track them down sort of, you know, in a place where people absolutely, utterly believe and I would just like to see them and see what what that brings to me. Um, So whether I'll do the O'Carolan thing, which is a bit scary, uh, the Irish uh, poet and harpist O'Carolan used to go and sleep on fairy mounds to hear the music and then he'd come back and write the most amazing music but I, th- I think that's a bit scary really <laughs> lying out in the dark somewhere <laughs> where you know fairies are going to be so there you go so maybe not that far off, but hey we'll see we'll see yeah, it will be it'll be an interesting trip yes <laughs> just, yeah, I just, hope well, it, just make sure you, you know, it doesn't get to if you don't come back yeah i could be i could be hosting the show on my own you um, could be i just hope it doesn't get too blair witch at the end we'll have to see. then you come back seven years later and you haven't aged <laughs> yeah, that's it. That but you're quite you're, pro- you're quite like that you like, would like that, that. Would be fabulous yes that would do me yeah yeah pockets bulging with fairy gold that turns out to be nothing that's the usual thing isn't it dead leaves or something but there you go so yeah it is i mean yeah. i mean i had to i think if i go back and if i imagine if someone was going to give me the equivalent of what 500 pounds was in the 1920s yeah. now which would god my maths is terrible it's about but are you four talking grand thousands yeah of, it's about four four just grand over okay four grand i think yeah, I mean, four grand. I mean, I was I was working in a relatively good job, so four grand would have been it would have been okay, um, but it, it wouldn't have like wowed me completely. But I mean, I did get aha. Uh-huh. Now, oh, that is a direct thing. Four grand is a direct thing of of what the money um, w- was worth. Kind of, how can I explain? Look at what you could have bought with four grand then. How many houses yes. you could have bought a street right, of okay. houses for that? I mean, you had had four bedroom houses um going for 300 odd pounds in the think in the 30s Mm. so really you know you could probably for you'd have bought a few houses you'd have bought half the village i still get a royalty check every year for my photographs oh that's fabulous Um, but it's it's nowhere near enough to buy a row full of streets (laughs) i could probably buy a row of lego lego houses with it i think last year was it's about 57 pounds a year i get which um is okay i suppose for saying fairy, that i don't have to do fairy anything gold. that's brilliant <laughs> that is my that is my fairy gold yeah. 57 pounds was the last one <laughs> fantastic but the uh the actual the cottingley fair the girl's house actually came up for sale about three years ago i believe uh, and i got lots of people contacting me saying dan you need to buy this <laughs> you could open it as a fairy museum the fact that i live in kent and that's in yeah. north yorkshire yeah. was, um it's not 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 doable yeah. and 
Yeah, I could have seen the business the business potential for it, but there's just no way I've yeah. done it. Also, it's it's parking's very awkward around there. I I was asked to do um, yep. the Cottingley Fairy Festival because I do the as you know I do the largest fairy fest in the UK, and I actually turned it down because the site it's not brilliant. It's not no. really that touristy you'll get sort of the old Japanese tourists wandering around <laughs> oh don't be nasty yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's not typical it's not your typical tourist trap type place at all you know if it was in the Lake District my goodness me you'd do very well out of it you know oh definitely yeah I mean and there are two Cottingleys I think if any any international listeners are listening to this show and they when they hop across to the UK they fancy taking in the sites and going to Cottingley be aware there's actually two. There's the one in Bradford and there's another one in Leeds. Yeah, well, and, it's the uh, one in Bradford I, is the one we're talking about. But the one Yeah, do not go to the one in Leeds. <laughs> oh, yes. I think if you if you actually go to Google now and type in Cottingley Leeds and have a look at the images, what you'll be presented with is two high-rise buildings surrounded by what can only be described as a sort of a modern apocalypse-type wasteland. <laughs> And uh, I, I actually went there when I worked for the police. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I actually went when I worked. I did some work for the police briefly. I was testing out the new um, airwave system, which for anyone in the UK will remember, you used to be able to tune into the police radios mm. with a standard a standard radio, but they they changed that for security reasons and turned it to a digital network. And I was contracted as part of a team who would go into the roughest parts of England with a car covered in aerials to try and get receptions of this airwave um, network to make sure that when the police and the emergency services went there they were able to keep you know keep in radio contact and uh, we were there and I saw Cottingley on the map and I thought wow I'm going to go and have a quick look at Cottingley and I got there and there was if I can remember rightly, nearly all the buildings were boarded up with aluminium, you know, when you get to a derelict yes. area to stop fires being set up. There was a donkey on a piece of chain in someone's front garden. And I just looked at it and I thought, this cannot be where the fairies were seen. And uh, But this it was almost not pre-internet days, but it wasn't the days where you could pick up your mobile phone and Google, are you in the right place? Yeah. Um, it was only when I got home that I typed it on the internet and uh, on my little 486 laptop and realised that, yeah, I got the completely wrong Cottingley. So I'm kind of glad that it, it didn't shatter the illusion. <laughs> oh, dear but it was awful. It, and it, it was raining as well. And it, it, it just, it was like something straight out of, it was like a horror film. But yeah, it was not, not a nice place. So be aware, do not go to Cottingley in Leeds. <laughs> There's probably someone from Cottingley and Leeds listening oh, to this I show, and they're going to send me some really. <laughs> they're going to send me a mouthful, but yeah, it may have changed. It may have be you know regenerated, but um, yeah, I don't think there's enough money in the world to regenerate that place. Yeah. To be honest, but anyway. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh well. So. So that kind of that kind of like wraps up this show then really on the Cottingley fairies. So you, you know we've covered a lot of ground, mm. but it mainly covers the the discoveries you've made over the last few years regarding these previous photo these photographs that predate it was actually um i was doing a talk for doomsday this this conference of magicians and and you invited me to do a talk and you suggested cottingley 
And because I was in the middle of my degree at the time, I had just done, um, it was the second year, I think, and I'd just done a load of work on that. And I'd left myself a whole five days to research this. And in that five days, I went to the Brotherton Library and I uncovered these other photographs. I, I found a lady nearby in Rithin who runs the Fortean Library and she had all the details of the photograph in the sphere. So it was this frenzied, it was, if you think about it, I was almost led by the nose, by the fairies. Yeah. To, I mean, it was beyond coincidence that I was given five days and in such a brief time, I hit on so much information. It was incredible. Um, but the Brotherton was an amazing place. And um, they didn't have the details of the sphere because that's held in a, um, oh, a photographic um, archive in London, but I, I was able to see this other photograph of the lady with the tamashanta sitting on the heather with all the fairies around her, um, which had no information with it. Nobody knows where it came from. It was just amongst no. the cottingly material, which immediately, and dated 1990, so immediately made me think, yes, you know, this is interesting. Did somebody send you know, send it in going, well, actually, we did this before you did it, and it just got lumped in. And uh, Yeah, it seems very odd that, I mean, if you if you were doing it for a first time, if you're doing it for a first time, you wouldn't have any need to reference anything, especially something as current and um, famous as the Cottingley Fair is. Obviously, if you do it after the event, then you would feel a need to at least reference it or credit it in some way. Well, the curators had so little information on this this photograph. Um, and that that was really frustrating. But the sphere was a really good lead because you've got dated evidence there. And the fact that it was a sunny garden, the photograph was printed in April 1919, must mean it was taken the year before. So that photograph would have been taken in the um, in the summer of, of 1918, um, which I suppose, you know, um, in the time of war, everything was looking pretty bleak. Uh, I don't think then they actually knew it would all be over finally by Christmas, which was the final year. Uh, and I think it was just anything to raise people's spirits, you know, a funny little bit of flim flam to put in the Sphere magazine. Somebody took the picture and thought that'll do, you know. Yeah. Um, so, and I should imagine it didn't get printed at the time because of reports coming through from the war. Maybe it was even seen as too light. Who knows? But then, 1919, yeah. April, so it wasn't that long. The war had only en ended in the previous November. So um, it just, you know, it was the way, as I say, all this information came together. It was extraordinary. And it was almost like I was being channeled or pushed by the fairies <laughs> to get it all sorted, um, you know. I remember when you, when you did the talk at Doomsday, the audience did gasp a little when you put up the photograph and said that you believe it actually predates the Cottingley Fairy photographs. There was people the audience were taken aback when yeah. you showed them that. Well it was the first time. It was the first time any yeah. of this evidence had been shown. I'd previously been there's a, a chap at I think he's at Huddersfield University, Leeds or is it Leeds? I can't remember. But he's called Merrick Burroughs and he does talks about Conan Doyle. And he brought in the whole thing of him um, you know, um the x-rays the fact he thought kids could see more you know he did all of that but he didn't have this these extra bits of information and uh, so when i put them in you know that audience they were the first people to see these pictures in a hundred years 
and it was it was proper coup de théâtre. It was a wonderful kind of you know the 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 way they gasped, the way they came up afterwards. You know, it's crowded after. Oh, you've got to write a book. You've got to get this sorted out now. So so that led to the book really. Ultimately, it, it I think I'd done. I can't remember when I actually did the thing for the 14 times either, but it was all pretty much of a muchness all around the right, the same time. So I was working like fury in, in what would have been um, the Easter holidays, I think it was, um, and getting yeah. it all put together. <laughs> but uh, Brotherton, I definitely want to go back and go through the archives again and have a really good look at stuff and take my time because that was so yeah. pushed for time. But now I'm going to go up there and hopefully spend a few days and, and just really, really go through absolutely every last fragment of information. But um, Brilliant. yeah, I mean, we will put we will put a um, in the show notes. We'll put a link to your book, um, which we've said before is available on Amazon. And I'm sure if they Google the 14 times, the article and the issue will pop up there as well. If anyone is interested in reading a little bit more about it, um, because. I think most people have tuned into the show thinking they were going to just hear a, a verbatim version of the Cottingley Fairy story, but of course it, it hasn't been. It's been mainly around your discovery of this, these, um, or this photograph that predates the what you believe predates those, the original Cottingley Fairy photos. Well, as I say, I haven't heard anyone attack it from this angle before, and really look at the girls and and the. You know, if the date is wrong, if I am correct and the date is wrong, then that does bring in the rest of the family. We then look at the father and think, yep, he was probably the one who took them, you know, and it, the whole thing starts sliding and falling apart. And it, as you say, it answers questions as to why there was such a rift, uh, why it was so important that, that the pretense should be maintained. And I think it was for... Um, Arthur Wright's reputation, family pride. I think, yeah, and I think after he, I think before he died, it was to keep him out of prison. And after he died, perhaps the girls felt, well, we're now of an age we could go into prison. I don't know if it was that, uh, or it could be they they just wanted his reputation to remain unsullied and keep him out of it because it, he was just just the shame as well, I suppose. Like the fam, the shame it would bring to the family and to themselves. And I think it just got to the point where Elsie just didn't care anymore and said, "They're fake. Yeah. Just leave me yeah. alone." <laughs> well, I th- yeah, I think she probably thought they're not going to put an old lady into prison. Um, I think she sold her her story to a newspaper and, and made money again out of it all over again without discussing it with Francis. So that kind of even deepened the rift, as you can imagine. Um, yeah, they it was did. In a, a magazine called The Unexplained. She actually admitted um, that there were fakes. And it was also in a in, it was also in newspapers as well. Then after that, I remember. Yeah, um, I think and, the papers picked it up yeah. after it was revealed yeah. in that, and then uh, and she, it kind of she, just took off again. Absolutely, and I think every so often it's going to. I mean, there, there was um, uh, her Francis' granddaughter was on um, Antiques Roadshow with the material as well. Well, I remember that a few years back, you know. Yes. And and there are always, you know, depending how many of these photos were sold at the Theosophical Society, there are always going to be sales with costing you photos, you know, when people discover them in attics and places, you know, people who, who bought these photographs. So I should think that it's going to carry on for a long time. 
and it's going to go and making money probably as well. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, these things always do. I mean, there's always the magic as well, the, the possibility of that fifth fairy photograph being genuine. You know, is it just the fact that the girls didn't realise they took a double exposure or, you know, did they really see something in the back in Cottingley and did they really take a real photograph? Who knows? There's always going to be that element of mystery to the story that no one can 100% answer. Well, I think it was a double exposure but also we've got this thing can you photograph fairies i have been sent i have been sent some very very interesting pictures um uh one of which i've got in the book and it is just the way it's it's a couple of uh, spheres of light of different colors and it's the way they've fallen upon the leaf litter in the background and they've just absolute, you know, right time, right moment conspired to suggest a little figure sitting on a toadstool. Now, is that is that another coincidence? Is that how these things reveal themselves? You know, that's the mystery to me. It's sort of, you know, can you photograph them or can you get things that suggest they could be fairies? That, that this is what people are seeing. Is it can is it digital or analog? You know, like with obviously with digital, you get the spirit orbs, but with analog, you know, with your normal sort of thirty-five millimeter camera film. Do you it, remember when uh, phone um, people were taking photographs with their phones? When when it first it, the technology was new, they were getting all sorts of strange faces and things in crowds. If, do, were you aware of this phenomenon? No, no. Yeah, very, very, very odd. And it, a lot of them were, were in newspapers. And that seems to have died out completely now. But uh, the fact that they were done on, on, on phone cameras suggested that they couldn't be faked. Whether they could or couldn't, I don't know. But the, the rumour was that Sony had R&D looking into it, trying to find out what it was. Um, and there was a word, and I can't. There was a nerd word for it, and I can't remember what it was now. Uh, really, sort of. Uh, I, oh, I can't remember. So, like, not architecture, but something like that. A really, a really kind of very oh, artifacts. Uh, no, not artifacts. Artifact, no, uh, I can't the, remember in the actual photos. Yes, no. yeah. I can't remember, yeah. but anyway. So, I have seen so some was... footage very similar to what you were talking about with the, the light falling on the leaf litter, and I can't remember whether I'd have to research it and have a look and put it in the show notes if I can find it, but someone videoed something in some woodland, and if anyone's seen the Predator film where you've got the the Predator and it's in its like invisible mode, there's a definite outline of something walking through the woods and creating disturbance in the forest floor as it goes. But you can't make any of it out, but it's reflect, it's refracting the light that's hitting it. So it almost gives you the impression of a humanoid shape moving through the forest. Wow. However, it's not 100% clear, but there is something there and it's obviously interfering with whatever it's walking through. Well, I, I can tell you something now. And I don't know if I'm going to be breaking any state secrets, but um, friends of mine, they, they've moved now. They had a campsite at Bala and it, it was used for um, training, let's say, for certain high up soldiers, if we can imagine who yes. these people are. And they oh, had, yes. They had three letters. <laughs> yes, three letters. Yeah. Three letters. <laughs> ghosts. We'll call them ghosts. That's the word, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, these guys, um, they were, I think they were probably paras at that stage stage and they were looking forward for the step up and they were given various tasks of uh, getting sort of uh, from town to a certain point without being seen and this involved 
lots of open roads um there's a the big lake there was a bridge you know these guys would get soaking wet and everything i have to say my dear friends used to leave snacks out for them which is very naughty <laughs> and probably incredibly unsporting but i thought that was so sweet but, but um, they were very grateful for I'm it i'm sure they were i'm sure they yeah. were but they had minders and uh the minders were gurkhas and they were wearing something that made them look like ghosts on the CCTV. So the night okay. cameras, because um, they had them all around the campsite, and they said it was the weirdest thing they'd ever seen. And it sounded exactly like what you're talking about. So yeah. these, these, you could see there was a form there, but you couldn't make out any detail, and you could almost see through it. This was the weird thing. So what? Yeah, I believe that technology is. is- who knows? is being developed yeah. or it has there's been word of oh, it this, being developed for quite a long time yes, but i think this it's was you know, years ago yeah yeah, yeah. this was a say, we, we're always when when stuff comes out in the military it's been researched and developed yeah maybe decades before before they actually get to use yeah. it and before we even know about it so I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm quite sure something like that does exist so it could have been just a, a stray soldier bimbling through the woods that that um you know, it could have, who up. knows? Yeah, yeah. But uh, I don't think yeah. he'd have been straight, and I think he's very unlikely he'd have been bimbling, but you never know. <laughs> but yes, I thought that was an amazing story, and they said it, it was just fascinating to watch. He said they just looked, they looked like Predator. And I, I remember that stuck in my mind, you know, but there you go. So, I've so got a, a strange story from one of, my, um, one of my military sort of experiences. There's been... I think people who frequent the internet a lot will have seen things about um, stairways in forests or um, sets of stairs. Have you heard yeah. of this phenomenon before? No, I, um, yeah, I, I vaguely, only a little bit. I don't. I'm not that well read on it, but I, I'm aware of it. Yeah, but this, uh, yeah, just wandering through some woodland somewhere, and all of a sudden they'll find a staircase um, which goes up into nothing, uh, a, a series of steps, and people have sent in photographs. I think if you go on YouTube or Google and just type in um, stairways in forests, you'll see a lot of images of people who've just come across a either a spiral staircase or just a set of stairs in the forest that lead to nothing. And there's all strange tales of if you go up these steps, you know, there's missing time and people have come back down the steps and, you know, three days have passed and all the usual types of stories. Yeah. But um, I was on a... Um, uh, a military expedition sort of training exercise and i'm trying to think where it was it was probably in hampshire somewhere and we kind of got a bit lost and it was a sunday morning and we'd been up since about 3 a.m and we were wandering around and we'd, we'd lost our way and we'd somehow ended up on in this section of forest and we came across um do you know when you get on a on an airplane when you have to get off the runway there's the steps that go up to the door i don't know what the technical name is for them yeah yeah just the, the the stairs that go up to an aircraft yeah there was one of these in the middle of the forest just stood there um a hole you know that would be big enough to get on board like a boeing 747 this whole sort of series of steps and it was only till later on probably two three years ago that i heard about these stories of steps in woods that i remember actually coming across a set of stairs in the woods and, that is uh, bizarre that is no one really actually, strange we didn't go up the steps we just saw them and thought oh that's really weird everyone commented on how odd it was that we'd found these airline steps in the middle of a forest 
and it actually turns out we were on private land as well because we walked for about another five minutes and we ended up inside a walled garden of almost like a stately home type place and uh, the only way out was to actually bunk each other over the wall onto the road the other side. And as, <laughs> as, the last, as the last person was bunking one of the lads up over the wall, the guy who owned the house opened the window and was like, what the, you know, what the hell are you doing here? And we were yeah. like, we're all Navy on exercise. Go back to bed, sir. We just dropped down the other side and ran off. But it was a... <laughs> I'd, love to, I'd love to remember where it was. So, but, um, so it these was, stairs, it, were they pristine or were they overgrown? No, what no, were they like? The, they weren't overgrown though they were just they were just dirty they'd been there for quite a long time and what, um, but there was what no reason. material were they made of it's just exactly the same stuff as like you would find at the airport metal right. and they were exactly the same the with the wheels on and everything and yeah. they were just in the middle of the woods leading to nothing and with nothing around them that you would want to use them to get up into so no there was no tree, like no tree aircraft or anything no, nothing. Thing, no. They were just there. They were just there in the woods. If you can so imagine no walking through the woods strange. and, and yeah. finding a set of aircraft stairs in the middle of the forest. And <laughs> it wasn't bizarre. even flat land. So it wasn't the typical landscape where you would have a runway for a, or even a small private runway. It was just a set of steps in the woods. And uh, it was I'm on trying to land. think if, if they'd have been trying to set up a zip wire or something you know, like there's that probably a, there's probably a perfectly rational explanation why they were there but it just struck me as odd when all these other stories on the internet came out of similar yes. findings in woods of stairways in woods linked with missing time missing people and uh, I'm kind of glad I didn't actually go up them <laughs> to yeah, be honest that would, have been, that would have been another yeah. story wouldn't it yeah, yeah, yeah. could have come back in the future or yeah. something who knows <laughs> Yeah, so I think what we'll do now is we'll uh, we'll take a short break and then uh, we'll be back in a moment to wrap up. Have you had an encounter with the Reefork you can't explain? We'd love to hear about your experiences. Send your tales to stories at thefairypodcast.com. And welcome back. Uh, this is the Fairy Podcast with me, Fiona Mar and Dan Baines. Yeah, then that was a very uh, interesting show. I must admit, it was your field of expertise, so I kind of, you know, let you have control of the uh, the the mic there. But I've, you know, it's all stuff I've heard before, but I always find it captivating. Can't really do enough about the Cottingley Fairies. I don't think. No, and as I say, this story is going to run and run, whatever happens. You know, it's still, we are, I believe, still going to be talking about it in 100 years. But leading on from the whole idea of poor old Charles Altamont Doyle incarcerated in his lunatic asylum, as they called him in those days, um, next time we're going to be concentrating on Richard Dad, And you know quite a bit about him, don't you, Dan? I do, yes. I've got a very interesting story to tell about him, but I'm not going to obviously reveal anything till the next show, but it is one of those weird fairy coincidences that seems to have plagued my life. And it was just, when I did find out about it, it really took me back. It mm. really knocked me back when I when I realised um, what this coincidence was. I'll keep my mouth shut because I'm going to end up spilling the beans. So <laughs> I won't say anything till our, our third episode, which... 
I believe will be out. I think we plan to sort of record it mid June, don't we? Yeah, and get it out um, a little bit earlier than this one. Um, yeah. We've had a very busy, uh, very busy May. Hence, this has come out towards the end of the month rather than mid month. But we'll try and get the June, the June show out um, around the middle of the month. Yeah, um, so, and uh, two or three weeks time. And for those who don't know who Richard Dad is, there's a very, very famous painting called The Fairy Fellas Master Stroke. And he did the most amazing detailed paintings of fairies. So we might do yeah. a bit more about other fairy artists as well. Yeah, a lot of connection with um, f- uh, artists and fairies. There's quite a few out there. Yeah, and, and questionable mental health as well, it would seem. Yeah. So the places where people are absolutely in extremis um, seems to be that's when they want to paint fairies. So that's quite interesting, too. It is very interesting. So as we said before, you can follow us on Facebook and you can also listen to the show and subscribe on Spotify and on iTunes. And you can also download the show directly as well from if you just go to www.thefairypodcast.com. Um, if you don't have the ability to stream the shows, you can just go online and you can just download them and put them on your iPod or whatever device you care to listen to. So once again, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time with the Fairy Podcast. Thanks a lot. Goodbye. Subscribe via your favourite podcast streaming service and follow us on Facebook and YouTube.